Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Melissa Swift, who is joining us uh, from uh, New York. And she is the North American Transformation Leader at Mercer, who are uh, an HR-focused consultancy, making the world a better place. And they've been around for 75 years. Uh, and she is also the author of this book, uh, Work Here Now, Think like a human and build a powerhouse workplace, which I have read before uh, before today. So, Melissa, welcome to the show. Uh, delight to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. So, for people who've not heard of you before, uh, could could you give us a little bit of your backstory? How you came to end up writing a book about uh, building powerhouse workplaces? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm a you know I'm a consulting leader and a you know working consultant uh, in the room with clients every day, uh, you know, basically live, live on these issues that we're all talking about in, in the workplace, right? About how do we make work both better and, and more productive, right? And how do we do both of those things at the same time? And, and also, I think a big red thread of my career is how do we do them in a way that's really supported by data and evidence, too? Uh, you know, this is this has been kind of a big thematic for me in, in past roles. I've done things like run a data driven think tank and things like that. So it, it's a real passion of mine that we could kind of do this all better if, you know, one of the, the key ingredients is we don't always look at the evidence. So, you know, when I think about my work and, and the work that my teams do, it, it's really about how do we figure out what's really going on in a given workplace or workforce or both. And then how do we how do we concretely make it better? You know, consulting can sometimes be accused of prolonging the problem, right? So our, our goal is not to do that, right? We we want to actually create some unlocks. And, and so that that's kind of what what inspired the book is I always get asked by clients, you know, where do I start? You know, what's some real stuff I could do to get started on this journey? And that's that's a bit of what what inspired me to actually sit down and write it all down. <laughs> Excellent. So is and is that your so did you have a sort of data background when you when you started out? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a weird combination of stuff. I was an English major as an undergraduate and then I have an MBA in finance. Okay. So sort of both words and storytelling and data. Um and it's my it's funny my deep background. Uh, my late father was a geneticist and you know a highly quantitative researcher. So I think growing up with that in the background, I, I really kind of have this almost religious sense about, about data and about the scientific method and about trying to establish the truth, right? I think truth is really important. And again, in the world of work, sometimes we kind of do a little smoke and mirrors and we're like, but it's not this, it's this. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of those, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain moments and say, let's just let's just look at the data, guys. Let's just what does the data tell us? Yeah, yeah. And and all the way through the book, yeah, it's pe peppered with statistics, which uh, yeah, I certainly appreciate it. And, and and it starts, I suppose, on a dark note, right? You 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 talk about just how much work sucks and you lay it out in the stats. So maybe there's a good place to yeah, to start the conversation. Just what what is the state of the workplace today as you as you see it? So it, it's interesting. I think we go through these gyrations of work getting worse and better. So the last big gyration was was probably the Industrial Revolution. Mm. That look at kind of the 
earlier years of the Industrial Revolution. And workplaces were just awful, right? And not even awful in the normal ways you think of. Basic things like there would be so much sawdust on the floor that, that factories would periodically just catch fire, right? Like just yeah. terrible stuff. They employed small children to do little things under machines and the machines would just eat them sometimes. Like just, you know, you read, you read about the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. It's, it's, it's worse than what you're picturing, mm. right? It's, it's bleak. Um, and then we went through a period in kind of the early part of the 20th century. We cleaned that stuff up, right? Mm. We said, okay. Factories, it's a regulation. You can't have sawdust all over the floor, right? Because your factory is going to catch fire. Don't, don't do that thing. You can't have kids in the factories at all. Terrible idea. Inhuman. Don't do it, right? And so work actually then got better. You know, let's say illustratively kind of 1900 to, to 1950, right? Work, work got better again. Where we're at right now is I think we're at another place where it, it in terms of the, let's say, the information age, as opposed to the Industrial Revolution, we have the equivalent of sawdust all over the floor again. That technology and ways of working have evolved in ways that, once again, are kind of not so great for human beings. And I think the good news is, you know, if, if there are some, you know, bright spots to come out of the COVID pandemic, we became really acutely aware of how bad work had gotten again. Mm. I mean, I'm a, you know, <laughs> the few, the proud Gen X, right? We're a smaller generation, right? There's not many of us, right? So that's why you don't hear from us that often. Uh, but if you're Gen X, you've really seen work get worse mm. in your own lifetime. And it was fascinating when I started doing research for the book, I was like, I have this weird sense that work's just gotten worse. And you dig into the academic literature and they're going, oh yeah, work intensification increased last few decades, no question. And what do you mean by work intensification? So what happens with work intensification is a sort of like simple but compelling concept. And it's the idea is you're doing too many units of work per unit of time. So that can play out any job, right? I'm working in the fields. It can be, okay, you have to pick this many strawberries per hour and it's too many, right? I'm, you know, illustratively doing a consulting job. It's, I have too many Zoom calls in a day. Right. It's just too, too much of whatever the work unit is in the same you know, amount of time. And it's interesting because then this, the working day doesn't feel the same. So, you know, let's say all of the assumptions are around, OK, this person's going to work a 10 hour day. A 10 hour day might have felt OK 20 years ago. It doesn't feel OK today because mm. in each of those 10 hours, you're doing more stuff. Some of it having to do with technological multitasking, right? You've got so many emails coming, you get Teams chats, people are texting you, you're on Slack, you know, all of that. Uh, and there's been a lot of good, you know, kind of neuroscience around the fact that we can't just switch between all these meetings, especially being on video all day long. And, and so work intensification, that, that's where, you know, if people have this sense of like, just like we're all so overloaded, that's where it comes from. There's something real going on. We have to kind of stop gaslighting ourselves and, and saying, oh, no, it's just a sense that we have. No, 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 there's, there's good data for it. That, that's fascinating. And yeah, because anecdotally, you know, I've just, I guess we both work in, in sort of corporate world. So it's, so it's obviously different. But yeah, you hear that the Zoom marathons, and I've just been on Zoom. Uh, and people sort of make dark jokes about it, but I'm not sure how many people 
recognize what exactly what you've just said that this is this is not normal from a historical perspective we are going through something that's affecting many of us um and it's making our lives worse yeah yeah um, absolutely and then the thing is blue collar jobs have a version of it too you know there's been some really great research on workers in warehouses that our expectations of what a worker in a warehouse can do physically may be miscalibrated at this point right that people cannot pack or stack as many boxes, especially when you have robotics in the environment mm. or you have some mm. degree of algorithmic management, right? That a sensor is monitoring how many boxes you can stack. A human boss might say, gee, you know, it, like you're kind of, you're limping. It looks like your back's going out, et cetera, et cetera. A, 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 when you, once you're algorithmically managed or you're working side by side with a physical robot that's moving faster than you, you can move to meet it, Mm. Right. Some of those safeguards go out the window. So that's that's what's really interesting is that it's it's not just kind of like white collar knowledge work that's intensified. It's it's all types. Yeah. Well, that chimes. I, I worked at a large logistics warehouse, we say, and uh, that they were uh, that I saw the people between break times literally running from the canteen to be at their station in time to to do the next, you know, to do the next pick. Uh, and they're all in like sports gear, and 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 it's and it, it looks you know extremely intense the work that they were doing, um, and yeah, that that would uh, ring true from what I observed there, um, yeah, and so I can, I guess I can imagine that that is you know true across many blue collar, blue collar jobs. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And what you say about the tech, and I love the way you talk about tech in this book, which is which is interesting. And again, I think is often missing in the conversation about you know w- workplace. We often talk about relationship between bosses and and culture and so on. But you know, I love I love your focus on on tech in this book. Um, and there's particular physiological impacts of using Zoom, which you say, which again rang true. Right, we're, we we uh, we're not we're not supposed to stare at our own faces for for this amount of time, right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the interesting thing about, you know, tech, we, we have this, and you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's so optimistic. We have this assumption about tech at work that, you know, technology is just going to always make everything better. And we have, we have others, we have a lot of myth-making around technology at this point, you know, that, that it always works, you know, and that technologies always work well together. And our day-to-day experience of tech is, is not that, right? That, you know, technology, it, it, it breaks down. The interface is not always great. You know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that, that goes on. Um, and, and kind of ditching some of that myth-making and saying, okay, technology, just like everything else, can be a positive or negative factor. And we have to manage the human relationship to technology instead of at this point a lot of what we do sometimes is actually make the humans work with the software and hardware instead of the other way around yeah. and you know that's that's not the most wonderful choice yeah it just reminds me the um you know, the stories about the sap implementations for those other you know these are big systems that manage kind of every aspect of a business's operation and uh yeah, the, the standard line there would be, right, don't try and change the system to meet your process. <laughs> you, it's easier and better for you to change your process to meet the system, which, yeah, at some level is ludicrous, right? That 
um, yeah. we'd allow the, the technology to dictate our lives in in that way. And then another stat, stat which I like from the book, which was a Citrix study, um, 71% of employees uh, found that collaboration and communication tech uh, makes their life more complex. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's the... That's that's kind of the the rub on collaboration in general. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the work of people like Rob Cross, who say that, you know, collaboration, like I say that word, and that sounds really positive, right? Like we like to collaborate, we like to work together. But there is such a thing as over collaboration. And collaboration technology, again, I mean, it it can feel like standing in the middle of a stadium with 30,000 people shouting different messages at you all the time, particularly when a lot of times we will have multi-level conversations going and other conversations going in the background. So you might be on a call and then you've got a chat going about the call and then you've got other emails coming in. You've got other chats coming in. Um, you know, the, the pace with which people can throw their priorities at you versus your ability to, you know, kind of you're constantly hitting hitting balls back across the net, right? You're not necessarily acting on your own priorities in, in a way that's particularly impact oriented, you know, and, and that's the that's one of the red threads of the book is that a lot of the activity at work has been completely disconnected from the impact. And part of what's going on with collaboration technology is exactly that. It's I don't want to say it's idle chatter, but it's not always outcomes driven. Right, right. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And, and I'm sure loads of people are resonate that, you know, you could, I mean, I personally could spend my entire day just going through all of my inboxes and fill eight hours just replying, <laughs> right? Yeah, without achieve, achieving what but it's yeah, it's a, it's a dip, you know, well, it can be a challenging situation to navigate because, because then you're like, okay, well, if I don't do that, well, how do I develop discipline to stay off these tools? And you know, it's there's no like easy answer, is there, to to finding a way through that because well, our environment what, is is stuffed with these tools. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 some funny kind of network effects things you can do. So I've seen the piece of advice. The only thing that will concretely reduce people sending emails to you is if you send fewer emails, which is sort of a fascinating network effect finding, right? The rub there is, you can only, you know, it, you can only reduce it so much, right? If, if I could stop sending emails tomorrow, I'd still get a bunch. Right? Right. It's, there's, there's, there's a universe of the possible here. Mm. Um, but some of it also is that uh, the way that we emotionally cue off each other has a lot to do with it as well. That, you know, like me, you probably feel guilt if you don't respond to someone's email in a timely fashion, right? It makes yeah, you feel exactly. bad. Yeah. That's that emotional. And some of it is that, you know, depending on kind of how people are wired, you get these dynamics where people who have maybe a touch more empathy end up really at the mercy of over collaboration, especially technology enabled over collaboration, because they feel for all the people reaching out to them. And it's yeah. really emotionally tough and draining. And so the people who are like the emotional nerve centers of your, your workplace, and I think Rob, some of Rob Cross's work has shown this, end up completely drained because they're mm. the ones who feel like 
they have to respond. That's that's fascinating because I remember having a mentor once who was a very senior CEO, and he said to me once, "You know, Richard, don't forget you have no obligation to ever re- respond to anybody." And 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 that was like this, and I re- and to this day it stuck with me. And he's absolutely right, of course. Like we don't totally abs- right. have no absolute obligation to reply to anyone, but it can be. And and he presumably found that quite easy just to like ignore people, right? And just be like, yeah, I can totally see it. Now, I don't know where I'm on that structure. I'm definitely not super sensitive where I feel like I've got to like people please and reply to everything, but I'm probably not at his level where he's just like, oh, maybe I'll reply, maybe I won't, right? We're all probably somewhere on that spectrum. (laughs) Right. I'd like to get a little more indifferent, but it's a journey. Yeah. It reminds me, I had this, this upset a few people, but I had a guy on the show who who wrote a book called The Wisdom of um, Psychopaths. And talked about precisely that. Like one of the things we can right. learn from sociopaths and psychopaths is that sometimes it's a good thing to turn off the empathy switch for our own right preservation. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But the the interesting thing is, technology doesn't make it easy to do that sometimes, mm. right? Like how many you know, like all the jokes and memes about per my last email. You know, it's so easy to just re-forward your email back and be like, <laughs> you know, hey, but you didn't respond to me. Nudge, 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 nudge. Hey, did you see my ping? Right? Like that's that's part of the issue is that even when we put up appropriate boundaries, technology is set up to try to breach, breach, breach. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's an environment. It reminds me a little bit of of, of um it the, the food environment, right? It takes real discipline to stay like healthy with your food because you're constantly being offered, you know, high fat, high sugar, you know, options wherever you go, right? So yeah. to to stay in shape is is probably well. Look at look at photos of 1970s on the beach, right? And everybody's slim, right? It's much harder today to stay slim than it was perhaps 40 years ago, and perhaps equally, it's much harder to sort of have a stress-free day, let's say, that it was, yeah, a few decades back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so this is um so this is uh this is fascinating. What would you say? So there's the there's the technology which is a major factor. And presumably that also feeds the intensification because it's a lot easier to communicate with each other and share tasks with each other. So it's much easier to fill up somebody else's stack, so to speak, with with tasks. Are, are there any other pre- sort of prevailing factors here that are, are causing work to suck? <laughs> I, think, I think some of it's just cultural myth-making. Mm. I, I do think there's something interesting about the fact that work has gotten more intensified, but also greedier. I talk about greedy work in the book, mm. right? And that's just the work spilling out of normal work hours. Right. You know, so it's it's you're getting emails and you're responding at breakfast and you're responding during dinner and you're on your laptop at night and that that, you know, in the weekends and it's on your vacations, you're replying and all that. And it, there is something interesting about those two things happening at the same point started to really happen at the same point that you got more women in more senior professional roles in the workplace. And I do wonder if there's a bit of cultural push and pull about the folks who've traditionally been in those roles holding on to them by creating working cultures that are resistant to more diverse populations. Mm. 
right? It's easier to work 14 hours a day if, let's say, you have a, you know, a non-working spouse at home to do all the other stuff. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. But then, but work wasn't intensive when, even when women weren't in the workplace, right? So even when it was just men managing men, it wasn't as intensive as it is now. Right, right. But there's a there's an interesting thing about all this stuff sort of started to happen at the same time. Right. And it's not just women, right? It's, you know, let's say you're a farmer. Oh, I see what you're saying. So that so it was almost okay. So it was as yeah. a response to as the, a the response. Here, as a response to the women coming in, yeah. and then deliberately started working longer hours to like I, I don't know. Work. I don't an idiotic move to do deliberately but we do a lot of unconscious stupid stuff in working culture right yeah. so there's there's something interesting about an environment that got new groups of people in be it women be it foreign-born workers people of color and then started working really differently around that I same guess, time i guess that you could i suppose how would you find out you could i suppose if there are any populations where there's very low female participation participation who've been exposed to this technology and and work hasn't intensified i suppose that would be your test group wouldn't it <laughs> right right yeah. but it, it's a potential explanation for things like everyone's like oh you know why don't we have more women ceos you know why why we keep trying all this stuff and it doesn't work and and some of these pieces around ways of working that kind of quietly and stubbornly resist a different group of people doing it there's there's something very interesting there yeah i guess and whether to what extent that might be conscious or not, right? I, I can, yeah. Interesting though. Um, so there's that culture. So okay, so that might be part of it, right? Men trying to keep hold of things by deliberately intensifying and extending the working day. What is there anything else that that you know you think might be a factor? Well, I think also the the way that we um, reward executives as well. So if you look at what's mm. happened with, again, during that same period, you know, you get this period like 1970 to the present when work's just kind of gotten worse the whole time. And you have a lot of different things going on, right? You have women kind of like coming into the workplace. Another thing you had was the sort of um, an incredible rise in executive compensation yeah. and, and linking it oftentimes in public companies to soft performance. And today, a lot of stock trading is algorithmically back to the tech idea is algorithmically mm. managed. So you've got software responding to cues in the environment. It's not necessarily humans looking at company performance. Yeah. So there's kind of a ceaseless quest for certain kinds of growth that's looked for in certain ways and rewarded in certain ways. And if I'm, you know, again, a human manager, reacting to that, I might not come up with the cleverest solutions. And the not clever solution is people just working more, mm, right? Mm, mm. So it's yeah. sort of a blunt instrument to kind of feed this like machine of like forever growth um, instead of uh, what the book argues would be the cleverer way to do it, which is ways of working that actually work with how humans work better. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good segue to get on to... Uh... <laughs> The solutions. Uh, but yeah, just before we get into that, 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 that does remind me. I don't know if you, have you read the book, The Man Who Broke Capitalism, you know, the story of Jack no. Welch. But that's a fascinating book. And it talks exactly to that point and how he basically perverted all of the management norms within GE to hit these quarterly set of numbers that would increase the, the, the stock price and just burn the whole divisions and the whole cut, you know, 
it's GE's innovation ability. You know, it just it just cut deep into the bone of the company um, in order to basically turn it into a financial institution that would see continuously riding shop page stock stock yeah. uh, stock. No, I, it's a great it, it, it's a great example, and it's it's interesting that I really like that the discussion of sustainability has moved into just our business practices sustainable, mm. right? So not the environmental impact, but mm. to your point. There are things you can do that will give you, you know, short-term gains that are unsustainable in the long run because you are burning down things like your innovation capability, mm. your workforce, your executives, you know, resourcefulness yeah. and energy. Yeah. Right. It's it's unsustainable in the most basic sense of that sustainability word. And I love that we've started to have that that conversation instead of just going, Oh my God, another company just blew up, you know? What happened? You know, I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes that makes it because because we are human beings, we're part of nature, and we have you know an obligation to our the sustainability of us as a as a species as as much as we do any other aspect of nature. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So if if we're looking at work practices and sustainability of work practices, yeah, what are the some of the things or some of the areas that you tend to focus on? Yeah, so I think a lot of our kind of basic assumptions go wrong because we don't really understand this kind of very fundamental connection between what is the work that actually needs to get done to drive the outcomes that we want. Mm. So if we don't really understand, let's say, the content of a job, and a lot of times we don't, you know, you read, how many times have you read a job description and thought, wow, that captures it, that really nails it? (laughs) Never. They're often terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, they were great. You're like, ten- how do I get myself excited about this for the interview? <laughs> yeah. They're awful. Job descriptions yeah. are awful. Routinely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we don't really know what's in the work. We don't really know what's in the job. And then our, our hiring processes just replicate the same folks over and over. And you get funny mm. things like, you know, the bank that hires all lacrosse players and things mm. like that, right? Where it's, you get this funny repetitiveness, or sometimes you'll scroll through the executive team of a company and they all physically resemble each other. It's a little creepy. Mm. Um, but that's because we, at the root, we sort of don't understand what the work is. So there's one good working practice to adopt is just taking a step back and looking at what's in certain key jobs and what actually makes a person good at doing them. And mm. you might pick different people. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, as a, for instance, a lot of uh, nursing job descriptions haven't been rewritten in forever. And there's a huge labor force crisis in nursing, not enough nurses. And so for one hospital system, they realized that because so many of their patients were, this was on a psych unit. So a lot of their patients could be potentially violent, et cetera, et cetera. That actually physical size and strength was an important characteristic for doing the work well, right? Mm. So they started to try to hire for that. But tricky. They weren't finding it in the nursing population. So right. what they then did was they, they split the job out. That What they actually needed was some, some nurses, but some security guards. Okay. And they went and yeah. hired security guards. Mm. And I think that's a great example of where understanding the work has this really nice flow through to a better workplace because no longer expecting the nurses to also be security guards. The nurses felt safer. Everybody felt safer. 
the patients got better care because they could select the nurses for just like being good at nursing. Mm. And you had security guards to keep people safe in the event that there was, you know, a violent situation. Mm. Um, and I think that's a great example of just kind of go back to basics. Like, what does the job look like today? Not what it looked like five years ago, not what it looked like 10 years ago, not what it looked like when you, the leader of the group, were, you know, coming up through the ranks. But what's the job today? Should it get done differently? Right, right. Um, so, so uh, yeah, and I guess, and, and presumably that also helps with taking these out of corporate speak and, and, and talking more to the, to the, well, it's about the human, right? Uh, and and what, what we're asking for at a human level, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and sometimes what this takes, and I, I talk about this in the book, is admitting as a leader that you don't know exactly what your team does. And saying to them, I want to learn from you about how you do your work. And that's really, that's like a hard move for leaders, right? Like you would, so many of us were, were brought up to believe, you know, you never say, I don't know. I want to understand. You know more than I do. Those are countercultural statements mm. in many organizations. And people will, will look at you like you have three heads. Yeah. But those are the kinds of statements that actually get you fixing things. Because, it, you know, we're in an environment of very, very, very rapid skills change, right? Mm. The world is changing fast. So work is changing fast. So I don't think it's so embarrassing to say, okay, I need to learn from how my teams do the work. Yeah. And I can, well, and a lot of, we've had a lot of examples on the show here of people in businesses where the, t the team, the, the practice is the team hires for themselves, right? There's no like boss that has to hire. It's the team chooses their own. And I suppose that would, yeah, that would, that would more likely result in a better fit to what that team needs at that moment in time. Um, rather than what the boss thinks he wants for or she wants for her team, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, so the hiring, but well, I, interestingly, because what you also cite in the book, which I didn't hadn't realized that um, that we spend a lot of time right now, HR departments, twenty percent on recruiting new versus six to seven percent um, uh, of time managing current. So, presumably, there's a lot to be said for what we might do in terms of uh, managing the current workplace. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is a lot of HR departments don't really have anybody focused on looking at the actual work, right? Like you might have a few people kind of doing org dev, looking at the organization. Uh, you have a lot of people doing rewards and they'll look at things like job architecture, but generally through the lens of how we pay people. And you don't have anybody actually sitting there looking at kind of the main thing, which is the work and how it gets mm. done. And so that's why you get in HR departments, particularly a major disconnect and a major point of overload around the learning function mm. that speak to somebody in learning these days and they're getting crushed. They've got management. Our people need to learn this. Right. And then they've got the grassroots business up. No, but our people need to learn this. And mm. it's like 700 things. They just feel completely squashed. And right. the reason why is that nobody's kind of minding the store on what people actually need to learn. Right. Because nobody's looking at the actual work. Mm. And that's a that's a great area of opportunity for HR departments. You know, it could help shift that balance of spending all of this time on hiring new people versus just maximizing the folks you already have. I mean, we did some some great research at Mercer where we actually proved that 
holding all other things equal, tenure is a major predictor of, of performance and, and not, not age, like the, the tenure. So, you know, the 30 yeah. year old employee who's been there for 10 years as opposed to the 52 year old employee who's been there for two years, right? So yeah. basically, there's, there's a productivity premium to just hanging on to your people, hanging on to the people you already have. Right. Which, you know, it's, it's such a simple insight, but it actually proves out in the data. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, and that's, that would suggest that there's a massive missed opportunity there if HR are currently only six to seven percent of their time is on managing the current, right? And if they're the best, in, you know, the best thing you, one of the best things you could do is keep people. Just, yeah. 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 No, that makes, that makes sense. Um, what about, you know, what else, what, what on the te technology front then? Cause we're, we're surrounded by these things. You know, you mentioned earlier, send less means less incoming. Are there any things, other things that people can do sort of strategically in terms of their tech? Yeah. So one that we see a lot of organizations looking at right now, and if you can do a personal or even a, you know, a version of this for your team, I think it's wonderful, is that um, there's been some good research that part of the issue is switching between different technologies. Mm. So if I'm toggling for, you know, I'm on Teams and I'm on Slack and I'm texting and my email, right? That it's not just all the messages coming in. It's all the different platforms and switching, switching, mm. switching is really mentally overloading. So we are seeing organizations culling down their tech stack and saying, we want people to interact with just fewer technologies during the day. Mm. Um, so if you can do, you know, a personal version of that, you know, so for instance, I have a coworker who's very disciplined about the teams he works with. He wants all internal messages to come in via teams so that his email is just clients. And I love that. I think that kind of even setting rules around what platform is for what, fantastic. I think personally, just another good thing you can do is, is turning off notifications. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And that shifts some of the balance from I'm being told to I'm going to go look. I think that's it's a bit empowering. Yeah. No, that makes it. Uh, my partner, she's taken it to another level. She's put one of these. Uh, boxes you can lock your phone in. Are you familiar with those? Oh, like, like a Faraday kitchen. cage or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, not the, yeah, that, that, but it, yeah, you, and you can't open it, right? You put it on for three hours or four hours oh, yeah. and, and you could only get your phone out by smashing the box. That's, so that's brilliant. Yeah. Wow. I might get my husband one. I've not been brave enough to put my own phone in it yet, but uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that is the level I think, you know, these, these devices are so addictive, aren't they? You know, it's um, you, you kind of uh, drastic situations calls for drastic solution. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, keep in mind any technology that you use, and you know, it sounds a bit Orwellian when I say it this way, but it's it's sort of an unintended consequences. They're all designed to maximize your engagement with them. Yeah. Right. So if everything is designed to suck you in all the time. Right. And then layer on what we were talking about earlier with the kind of your emotional you know, feeling about I don't want to let down the human being on the other end. Those two mm. things together. That's what creates the situation where you do end up locking your phone in a box as, as a, honestly a fairly reasonable response to the situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so simplifying the stack, um, potentially buying a... <laughs> People phone, <laughs> turning off notifications. Is there anything else that people are uh, succeeding with? Yeah. So one tip that I recommend in the book, and this is this is so silly, is um, companies need to teach people how to communicate better in writing. 
we're going to be pinging each other all the time, you know, be it, you know, again, a ping in Slack and email, whatever. Not everybody's a natural written communicator. And there's actually great research that shows that your love, your ability to communicate in writing improves your performance at a wide array of jobs. So, you know, if companies could do some just very basic, like here's how to write an email that is short, clear, and unemotional. That's fantastic. And again, that's a thing you can do within your own team, right? Here's, here's what a good email looks like. Here's a good no. way to ping somebody in, in teams, right? That, you know, is sometimes someone will ping me and say, hi. Hi. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? What are we doing here? So just, you know, some of those, those kind of, again, the, the, the basics of written communication, just admitting that we're communicating and writing all the time and then doing it better. I think that's another simple step that actually makes life a lot easier. Right. And then you're not like back and forth with sorts of email. If you can get it all down very clearly in a single. Yeah. And it minimizes some of the clash. I mean, a lot of times people fight on email, just the, most of the time. There's no bad intent, right? People are just like ships in the night. They're just not good at mm. sending messages that other people can, can understand, right? So minimize the misunderstanding. And again, you're taking away some of that kind of like emotional load. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, actually, I, I went on a written communication, like business communication course, like in the first year of my career or something like that. And it's definitely one of the best courses the best. I ever did. The ROI on it is just extraordinary, right? Because it doesn't matter if you think you can write well, maybe you were a reasonable creative writer or you wrote papers <clears throat> academically. There, there is something specific about like good commu business communication, right? That, yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it's funny when I, I interned at Sotheby's one summer in college and we did phone training, how to the basics of how to speak to people on the phone, because that's mm -hmm. you're an intern at Sotheby's, you know, they have you're answering the phone and, you know, the arms and armor department or whatever. And again, I, like you, I look back on that so fondly because, it, you know, it, it is a specific skill set to be able to be clear and pleasant and listen and respond properly, you know, in a, a verbal communication like no. that. That's maybe I should go on one of those courses. I never did one of those. <laughs> it was great. No, it was really good. I still yeah. think about it all the time. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Uh, yeah, so that that makes sense. And also, what I well, I don't know how, what you feel about this, but getting off text, right? I mean, as soon as anything gets slightly contentious, or there's, there's, it's for me, I find it so inefficient to continue it as a text. I just want to jump on the phone if it's like more than one back and forth on a point. I'm like, okay, we need to talk. And, and so part of what stops people from doing that, because I agree, I think that is leading practice. So why don't we do it more? The reason is, and, and this is something I, I talk about in the book as well as a strategy, is that in a lot of companies, we are in meetings all day long. And so we push conversations right. that should be, let me opportunistically pick up the phone. We can't opportunistically do anything. We're in eight to 10 hours of Zoom calls every day. You know, I hear that across so many of our clients, but you know, people will say, I, right, I do my work at night because I'm in meetings the whole day. Mm. So killing off some meetings, particularly stand, I have a particular thing about standing meetings. I think a lot of standing meetings are very ineffective. And I love what some of these tech companies have done recently where they killed all the standing meetings and only something like 20% of those meetings came back because they were actually useful, mm. right? So if you can get your calendar clearer during the day, 
then to your point, the second things start to go amiss in written communication, you can be that person who picks up the phone because you're not on, you know, phone calls for the next four hours already. Yeah. Yeah. It's a reconfiguration of the whole workday. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you referenced, um, Cal, what's his name? The deep work guy. Um, Oh, Cal Newport. Cal Newport. Right. And I've taken some of that on. So, well, maybe you should talk about it first before I dive in. Yeah. So Cal Newport, uh, what, what's, what have you taken from his message? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. And I think that the emphasis on clearing deliberate space for deep work and, and clearing the, the constant interruptions that, that come in is, is absolutely critical. And it's interesting. I, a lot of times if I'll, you know, speak to groups of leaders and I'll say, how many folks have one hour free on your calendar next week? Mm. And it is shocking, right? How few hands go up. Yeah. And part of what wow. this is, is it's a, a factor of something I, I, um, I talk about in the book called The Work Anxiety Monster, where we have this voice in our heads about people are lazy and people are slow and I'm lazy and I'm slow. And there's a constant, and this is where some of our cult of busyness comes from, right? This constant mm. paranoia about everyone, including me, must work harder. And if I have I, you know, I free time on my that. calendar, yeah. whoa, are people going to think I'm just a scrub who's like, sitting around doing nothing, right? There's a fear of having white space in your calendar. And it's another example of technology really distorting our actions. Like just because I can schedule X number of hours a day doesn't mean I should. It doesn't mean my brain can keep up. Mm. Oftentimes my brain can't. So letting go of some of that fear and culturally renegotiating around it that, okay, you know, I'm going to have time blocked for deep work. And that's okay, because that's actually how work gets done. And that's how good work gets done. And that's also, by the way, how people stay sane. But that's, you know, it's, it's, you got to start by renegotiating that at team level, and then all the way, you know, sort of team by team, all the way up to the whole organization. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes so much sense. And and I've been experimenting with that in, in my life, and not putting as much as possible, never putting a meeting in before 12. And even with a client I was on who had this daily catch up every morning, like negotiating to only show up like one or two of those per week, like, but just, and yeah, so far, it doesn't seem to have, I've only benefited from it. And it also means I much more regularly get to the gym on time, you know, get to the gym each day. And like, it, I, I just, you've got, for me personally, I found I've got a much better chance of starting the day well. You know, going through my morning routines, um, getting some creative work done, it doesn't seem to have impacted you know, negatively in any other sense. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you've done there that I think is really powerful is you've also paid attention to your own circadian rhythms. Mm. That if you're uh, one thing I read that really affected me, because I'm very much a, a morning person, right? I'm just sh- mentally sharpest in the morning yeah. to your point about getting creative work done, right? I need those but that mo- many people's days are scheduled upside down. That their circadian rhythms mean they are, you know, mentally sharper in the morning, you know, like some of us are, are early birds, some of us are night owls, right? I'm an early bird. And so then in the afternoon, the meetings might thin out, but you, your brain's not as useful then. So really understanding what kind of work you need to do when. And then, you know, also just clearing that that space for things like, okay, if you know, I bet you're cognitively better all day and energy wise better all day if you get to the gym in the morning. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. and 
understanding all of those those interactions. I mean, I find I am exponentially more tired in the evening if my meetings really kind of stretch into the dinner hour mm. that, you know, there's sort of an hour there, hour or two in there where meetings have just a much, they start to weigh heavier on me. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. So just understanding those things about your, you know, and everyone's unique in that regard. And that's one of the reasons why I think there's a lot of promise to kind of the trend toward more asynchronous work of maybe we don't need to have a meeting. Maybe you can work on it when you're sharp, pass it over to me. I'll work on it when I'm sharp. You know, we can dialogue asynchronously. Not everything has to be a meeting. Again, just adapting to a greater array of human styles, which we know there's a lot of variation in, in people's circadian rhythms. That's a positive adaptation. If you're getting everybody's when they're most productive, right? That's, yeah. that's better. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think that's what COVID gave us, right? It, it was a lot of people ended. Well, it gave us two things. It definitely gave us people in having an even greater intensification of work because they're on Zoom all day. Um, but at least in some instances, I think it meant people did have a more freedom, right? I think it went both ways for people, didn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. And they, got, they got to experience like, uh, I, I, I got to experience a, a better balance in their life. I, I noticed that, um, there, there were more, um, there was more family creation during COVID, right? People just had more time with their partners and, you know, more, more, felt more relaxed. And so, yeah, there wasn't that, that same demand of the, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it was it was a fascinating kind of global experiment in, mm. you know, what if we worked in ways that were a little bit different? And it's interesting now because you see this big cultural debate about when is it going to go back to normal? And there's sort of an ever louder. And there was this belief, right? If we get a recession, everything's going to go back to normal. Right. And yeah. Come on, people. Like, I think what happened was so seismic that you know that that we're not we're not going to go back to exactly the way it was before because you know to your point people experimented with what works for them mm. yeah yeah exactly people experienced the, the greater freedom and very loath to give it back again um or to go back to something that that had less and and of course businesses didn't go under right we we didn't see a massive drop off in productivity so it's very difficult for people to make the case that uh yeah that the people have to go back to that old way of working yeah yeah exactly the world didn't end right because we were doing work in weird places at weird times yeah 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 um something that drew me in and why i wanted to get you on the show and you do mention uh later in in the book is uh trauma awareness right so this is a mm. this is a theme that runs all the way through the show we've had you know a ton of trauma experts on it i've had um, you know, a lot of personal experience dealing with my own trauma and invest massively in, in tr my own trauma release work. So it's, it's, um, it's been a huge part of, you know, my life and this show. And it's very encouraging to see you writing about it and it, it does, it does appear in the book. So yeah, to talk to me, you know, how you relate to that idea of trauma awareness in, in the workplace. Yeah. So this is one where I, I kind of went on a real journey about this myself when, when writing the book, because the concept was kind of first introduced to me in the context of one of the chapters of the book talks about how, so, you know, particularly in the United States, we have kind of a mass incarceration issue. We like to, we like to put people in prison. Don't ask mm. me why. 
not not it's not necessarily the greatest idea, but you end up with this huge population of formerly incarcerated people with an unemployment rate that's probably five times the average in the U.S. Mm. at any given point, mm. uh, which is crazy. So uh, I was interviewing somebody from the Illinois Prison Project, and she was talking about how you needed to incorporate trauma-informed ways of operating into the workplace so you can better include this group, right? That it, it, there are certain, you know, sort of normal working practices that would have a very different impact on a group that's been through going to prison. And then the big epiphany for me was, so I was like, oh, God, yeah, I haven't heard of this concept. This is amazing. Started reading about it. And found an article where they were talking about, well, okay, we all just went through a global pandemic. Congratulations. Everyone in the world has been through a palpable major trauma. So it's no longer a nice to have to have a trauma-informed way of operating. It is a must-have because we all just went through something. And that for me was like, a, you know, a big epiphany moment. And, and I do think it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, I'm thinking back on a former coworker of mine who used to work a lot with um, C-suites said that CEOs will often reproduce their own difficult family dynamics unconsciously in who they hire to their executive team. Mm -hmm. They will literally replicate, you know, like their family's way of fighting about things, you know, in, in like the, the C-suite of, you know, a Fortune 50 company, which yeah. why, but totally happens. Yeah. And I think there's there's a lot to be said for the argument behind not managing people in certain ways. A lot of times ties back to a trauma informed way of operating, right? That you know, as a, like a, a brute force example, you know, why is it not a good idea to yell at people in the workplace? Well, well, people got yelled at as children, right? Mm. There is it is not just the the trauma of what you're doing. Right now, you, the, it kind of has these exponential effects. Yeah. Right. Because of of past trauma. Yeah. And I, I think it's a it's a really different way of understanding how to interact with your workforce and a different way of thinking about your workplace. And and for me, it's just it's a it's a big unlock, even for leaders who are not supernaturally empathic, to understanding why certain things are just not a good idea. Right. So that's yeah. that's a little bit of my my soapbox. I've gone on a whole journey about this uh, myself. No, and I'm so I, I, you know I'm so glad you're you're talking about it. And now I would argue it's not just CEOs who recreate their their trauma patterns in the boardroom. We're all doing it. It's all everybody the time, unconsciously yes. <laughs> yeah. because there's some part of us who wants to heal that past event, and the way we do it is reproducing our current rut in our current lives. But then, unfortunately, we don't then take that next step, which is to to go ahead and, and to recognize that and to heal it. But I think what's starting to happen in society is people are seeing that, that we're all replaying our trauma to some degree um, all of the time. And that sounds like an extreme statement, but where I'm at in my experience, it doesn't feel like one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's honestly like I, I, one of the, you know, kind of red threads of the book is to what extent do organizations collectively need, you know, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy? Right. That to your point, these just like, you know, not great things we do to ourselves as people put a bunch of us in an organization and and organizations repeat trauma. Yeah. yeah. Over and over and over. And, and that was one of the things I got really interested in during the writing of the book is, you know, to your point, how do you break the cycle? 
And it's actually one of the recommendations in the book is within a team, sit down and talk about what the, what are the team's bad patterns, mm. right? What is our collective, what, what are we repeating? And, and that's a powerful conversation because when you get teams talking about it, it's sort of shocking how actually aware we are of it. But to your point, like we, we, we keep doing it, but having that conscious conversation as a team about what traumas are we replicating? That's, that's a, it's a really good starting point. It's yeah. The, the cuckoo who knows he's a cuckoo is halfway out the box. <laughs> yeah, have you heard that <laughs> I right? haven't heard that one. I like that. But the first step is identification. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then to see the pattern, just to see the pattern. Okay. I'm recreating something from my childhood here or some other part of my uh, history. Right. And then, uh, yeah. And then the next step is, and some people get that far and even that is enough because it, at least it provides them some insight into their behavior and why things are happening. Um, but then to start to unpick that and, you know, look at those events and, and get into a, you know, a healing and a grieve, a grieving cycle around it. But, you know, that's, that's step two, step three, step four. But uh, as you say, that just the first step has power. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, recognizing the ways that, you know, half the strategies I talk about in the book are at team level, because, you know, today working teams are kind of where the action is. And so even, I mean, this, it's, this is one step back, but even recognizing, this is going to sound so silly, but recognizing what teams you're on and what are the team's ways of operating, the various teams you're on. Mm. That can be a really interesting first step, too, because in modern, complicated, matrixed organizations, um, you know, many people belong to many teams, formal and informal. And so even just this is this sounds so silly, but just inventorying. These are my formal working teams. These are my informal ones. You know, these are ones that I've been made a part of that I don't want to be a part of. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of categories, but even just starting to say, okay, these are the teams I'm on and then taking the steps of, okay, what's going on behaviorally within each of those teams. That can be a really interesting place to start. Yeah. yeah that's fascinating. I, I did some work with a group recently and uh, yeah, that, the, I realized quite quickly they didn't know what the team was or which team. And so just mapping out that just on a whiteboard and they were so grateful to me. They were like, this is amazing. This, so we've never great. had anything like this. I found it astounding that these guys have been working together for years and had, had never had that conversation. Like what, who's on our team? Who isn't? What is our team? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not a dumb question at yeah. all. And it's genuinely unclear. And a lot of times you will have teams that are so large that there are informal sub teams within teams. And again, technology magnifies it that, you know, you can be in a large group meeting and people are texting each other on the side and they're chatting each other on the side. And, and, you know, it, uh, it, it kind of just yields these like Russian nesting dolls of teams. And so taking the conversation a step back and consciously saying, you know, okay, what's the team who's on it? What are the, you know, what's, what's going on here? It's a lot to be gained. Yeah, a lot to be gained. And it goes back to your point about technology, because now I'm just reflecting as you're sharing it, that, of course, it's so easy. Like, let's just create a team in WhatsApp or a team. You know, it's so easy to create an identification, add people to it. Suddenly you're, you're getting pinged and notified. You're getting invited to meetings. It's, it's so quick to create like a team. But what have you really created, right? Like, 
Yeah. And and half the time you don't know what team you're interacting with. I mean, that's the mm. funny thing. I was talking to some other parents from my kid's school the other day. And so there's a chat, there's a WhatsApp chat for like the class and there's a WhatsApp chat for the grade. And none of us ever know like what pings are coming from which Right. You know, so we're getting confused. Well, in Miss So-and-so's class, they're doing this. Why are we getting that? I didn't think our class was doing that. You know, and it's a Mm. it's a silly personal life example. But there's a work version of that going on all the time. Yeah, exactly. Times 10 in many organizations. Yeah, it's um, it's just this this technology enables so much. And then but but we as humans are, are sort of used to operating in certain ways it's it's so far ahead in some ways of our evolution as of our biology right absolutely and you know you get some of these funny things like you know seen studies about you know we struggle with numbers that are more than our numbers of fingers and toes you mm. know there's to your point there's some kind of natural biological neurological constraints on what we can process but at this point our technology power and our computing power and our you know external processing power so dramatically exceeds that i think that's what's a bit of why we feel so overwhelmed mm, mm. yeah but it, this is this is what's been so fascinating about the conversation and the book is i'd never you know it, it, funnily enough as a guy who started my career as a programming building tech and then transitioning into much more of a focus on the human factors i, I uh, what I'm really appreciating is that, is that interface. Yes, it is about work culture and quality of leadership and all kinds of just purely human factors, but a, a massive part of it is our tech uh, is, is playing into the, the the human experience in the workplace and in our lives in general. Yeah, I mean, we can't sort of ignore it or pretend it's it's neutral, right? It is It is part of the equation. I mean, just the way that we... You know, there's been a lot of discussion as as we've returned to office, you know, about things like open plan offices, mm. right? So we could admit that our physical environment affects how we work. But these days, most of our environment is the virtual environment. So just like, I mean, I, I heard a, a very interesting example of a company that in certain kinds of meeting rooms makes the chairs deliberately uncomfortable because you're not supposed to have a long meeting in that room. Right. So that's we can wrap our heads around that example. Mm. Right. That mm. intuitive, immediate. Right. But there's there's technological versions of that. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's it's shaping our behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, is there anything else we you know, we've not touched on that? That sort of forms part of the potential solution to. Uh, dealing with this anxiety monster and, you know, other other negative aspects of the workplace. Well, I'll, I'll just come back to the the strategy that I'm such a fan of. I included it twice, uh, which is which is doing less. Mm. That, and it, again, there are lots of anxiety driven reasons and corporate structure driven reasons and et cetera, et cetera, that we don't do that. But one of the big unlocks for companies is just some sense of prioritization. And, and what is truly important in doing fewer things that are really important better. Uh, you know, I, I was in the, a, a conversation with the leaders of a tech company a few years ago, and, and one of the people started yelling at the CEO, you can't have 37 priorities. And I'm kind of, you know, sitting there in the background, oh, ha, 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 you're right, you can't have 37 priorities. No, 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 they actually had 37 priorities. It was a factual statement, right? Mm-hmm. And... And you're going, that's, that's wild. Yeah. And, and just because you can fit 37 bullet points on a slide 
doesn't mean you should prioritize 37 things. So it's kind of like if there's a, a big message that folks, you know, can embrace, it's the, it's the less, just, just pick fewer, fewer things. It solves for a lot of these issues around complexity, around overload, you know, even the, the technological pieces. If I have three key initiatives instead of 37, okay, well, maybe I'm on, you know, nine Slack chats instead of 112, right? right. It's, yeah. It just brings, it brings everything down. And it, it also acknowledges that if each hour of work is inherently more intense, then you just, you can't do as many things. It's, it's, we're in this weird state of the world where we think we can do more, but we can actually do fewer. Yeah. 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 So simple, isn't it? And I, I, and this has to be something that all levels of an organization need to embrace, right? Because it's, it's, it's difficult, right? At certain levels of the organization to say, no, no, I only focusing on one thing yeah, this week or this month. So, yeah. and, 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 but people being empowered right the way through to, to have singular focus. Yeah, it, it's interesting. We, we talk to clients a lot about this, about how the people sometimes who are the populations where they're seeing real attrition, oftentimes the early in career populations are the people who, mm. to your point, do not feel empowered to say no. Yeah. So it's like, if you truly want to retain those folks, set some organizational guardrails. Don't put it on them to say no, right? You know, I'm what, 25 years into my career? I feel fine saying no. I'm good with it, right? Somebody three years into their career doesn't. So that's the person you have to kind of set up the the protections for. The same as like getting the sawdust off the factory floor. You know, you need to set up guardrails around those early in career workers who are in many ways the most disaffected. Yeah. Um, because to your point, they're not going to feel like they can say no or say I'm going to do fewer things. That's It's not going to feel like an option to them. Yeah, no, that's, that's brilliantly put. The, the best example I've heard of that is... um. Have you, I don't know if you're familiar with the Menlo Innovations in the States, but we had the CEO of those. Those, those, those guys are fully embraced, you know, the, the agile way of working. And I know you've got a critique on agile in the book, which I enjoyed, but um, one of the ways they handle that ability for junior people to say no is they've got a, a big board, a physical wall. I don't know. They must presumably have a virtual version of it now um, in their office. And if any of the, they're all basically 90% of them are software developers. If somebody comes to them and says, hey, I want you to do this, um, physically, those people are encouraged and empowered to walk that boss <laughs> to the wall and say, okay, well, which of these tickets are you going to take off the wall off. So, that, so that I can put your one on the wall, <laughs> right? And if that's going to cause a row, it's, it's for you to go and, you know, so, so they're, they're creating that sort of physical ceremony yeah. almost around it. Um, and it's become a norm for everyone, so that one person doesn't feel like it's a, it, it, yeah, it would be a, a major step to walk that individual to the wall. So, yeah, that that's the way they've solved it there. Yeah, no, I, I love that, and it's it's funny in the book I, I talk about you know the kid the riddle for kids about the like was it like a wolf a goat and a cabbage in a boat crossing the river, right? And what order do you bring them over in? Because if you put the goat with the cabbage, the goat will eat the cabbage and the wolf will eat the goat and blah, 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 blah. But the, the point is you can't all have, you have them all in the boat at the same time. Mm. And that's what you're talking about. And it's, I've heard that theory about how to keep your house neat as well. Every time you bring X number of objects in, X number of objects immediately 
have to come out. Right. Right. Yeah. Same idea as what you're what you're describing. And I think it's very, very powerful. And it, it's interesting because again, it creates and and I think what that company has done really well is created a ritual to manage the anxiety of that moment. Because yeah. the moment of that's I am deprioritizing yeah. is a that's a fraught moment. Right. That's yeah. I am saying something is less important. And that is like the hardest thing in corporate life today. Yeah. But you're so right about the ritual because it, and especially in a communal ritual and a ritual, you know, sort of by its nature is something everybody engages in. So that individual, you know, programmer one year into their career doesn't feel like it's a big thing because they're just following the ritual that they see everybody else doing. So ritualizing those moments. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and just, and not because there's, um, you know, it's interesting. You think back to the, the roots of older work. So, you know, agrarian work, right? Okay. If we're going to grow corn this year, right? Okay. I can't grow potatoes Mm. because there's just a limited number of hours of daylight during the harvest or whatever, you know, there were, there were natural constraints. What we're living in right now is a world where there are still constraints, but we don't feel or see them. Yeah. And I think that's part of the anxiety, to be honest. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point there. Yeah, we, 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 and this perhaps goes back to our biology and, you know, we, we are naturally dealt with physical constraints, right? We, yeah, we were constrained by the number of people who could fit into a room to have a meeting, right? We, were, right. we had all right. of these natural constraints in our environment, right? We were constrained by our transportation, right? It would take time to walk to the next village or whatever it might be, right? All technology removes many of those constraints dramatically. Right? It seems to. We've still got them up yeah. here. That's yeah. the interesting it's, thing. It's yeah. like neuroscience-wise, we've still got them, right? But and, and then we end up kind of gaslighting ourselves, you know? Mm. Why do I feel so tired? What is go- why does this not, you know, like and then there's there's the cultural myth making about you know like the hustle culture and you're not working hard enough and I I have like zero time for that I think it's complete BS and I think it's perpetuated by again a fairly homogeneous group you know you don't see a ton of like working mom hustle culture right and yeah, there's a reason for that yeah, you know yeah. it's 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 not a super inclusive vision of the world. Yeah. Um, because the and reality is those few individuals who, well, seemingly, as you say, the myth would be that they have that capacity to work 80-hour weeks, week in, week out. Yeah. Most, most men, most women, right, don't, can't, do, right, can't, can't do that, right? Most it's, of us. Most of right. us. Right. Right. That's the, that's the interesting thing is that vision is just as kind of like inaccessible and repellent to most men, too. It's, right, it's yeah. a very... It's actually a very small, loud subset. It's a tiny of group of men, and maybe some women also in that category. But you know, maybe more than there are many more extreme workaholic men, probably more than there are extreme workaholic women. But put together, it's still a tiny, tiny it's subset. A, it's a tiny subset, yeah. But 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 again, it's the 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 myth making and the, the gaslighting. I really, one of the things that really gets me is that, you know, we've sort of pushed it back on employees. Well, you know, you should be working 80 hours a week and then practicing mindfulness. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> really? We've really, really, really? Yeah, what's your problem, right? Yeah. 
Oh my goodness. You know, yeah. no, if I'm, yeah. I'm receiving, you know, 45 pings on teams every hour, no amount of mindfulness is going to fix that, you yeah. know, and we gotta, we have to look at structures and systems and stop putting all of the pressure on individuals. I think that's again, kind of one of the big red threads of, of my book is that, you know, we sort of like create all these structures and systems that do sort of weird inhuman things to people. And then we're like, why are you not better at being a human being? I don't mm, get it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think the, the ritual point, I know I'm sort of belaboring the point, but it's, it's almost make it's, a, it's the norms, right? That when everybody does something, it, it, it mm-hmm. sticks and it, and it makes a bigger difference. I had somebody on the show who runs a, an advertising firm in Australia and she had pre-bactemic. There, there was this, you could, you could bring your dog to, to work at this place. And that, like every day they would go for a walk and the, the dogs would come too. But like everybody had to do it. So, so it wasn't like one hero could be like, no, no, I'm going to work through this. Everybody had to do it. And then everybody got that break. And everybody got a chance to socialize and, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's creating, creating the norms. The things that everyone does. And I think, honestly, that's the, what the future solution set looks like. I mean, I look at some of these experiments and co- that companies have done. Um, and we may be headed there, certainly in, in continental Europe, potentially regulatorily, of things mm. like shutting off email servers on the weekends. Right. Yeah. Right? That's, that's interesting stuff of saying, you know, to your point, if Everybody has to go walk their dog. And by the way, I want to work there. That sounds amazing. <laughs> right. Very, very attached to my own dog. Um, if everybody has to go walk their dog, it's not a thing anymore. And again, it's, it's to your point, like it's taking the pressure off the, the individual. The, the individual, yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that, that, that's my intuition as well, is where a lot of the solutions will come to is, is establishing, you know, mandatory norms that kind of break the cycle that, um, don't allow for the for the myth making and the sort of the that hero creation, yeah. Because there's just the, the you know again data and evidence mitigates against it. There's a study out of Stanford that I always cite that says that up until 50 hours a week, people are productive. Mm. Between 50 and 55 hours a week, it kind of goes off a cliff. And after 55 hours a week, you're basically unproductive. You're worthless. How many professions are keyed around 70, 80, 100-hour weeks? And how much of that is just garbage time spent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those people are literally useless because, again, we've hit one of those invisible walls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and when I hear that, that statistic, see, see, I hear that and I think statistically that's probably true on average for people. But it, but it, and it met, but I, I guess I'm still with, there may be outliers outliers on both on a sides card, though right yeah on both that's, that's the scary thing though right there might be people whose productivity ends at 30 hours a week All right right and but it's an interesting question how do we build a workplace that again like thinking inclusively that accommodates the person who taps out at 30 hours really and the person who taps out at 70 hours mm. and that is genuinely good for both people and that's yeah. the interesting challenge and that's where if we build more flexibility into work, right? More transparency, more asynchronous work, more deconstructed work where we kind of take jobs apart and put them back together. The more we kind of use those levers of flexibility, the better chance we have of including people with, you know, kind of both sets of capacity limits. Yeah. 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 And I can really see how data helps with that, right? Because it takes the, yeah, 
yeah, it, it, it allows you to have a, a sort of conversation about it all on a slightly different plane, right? If you can, if you got data to prove that people working thirty hours a week are more productive, or as productive as anybody else, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look at some of the studies coming out with, um, you know, experiments around four day work weeks. And did any of those businesses fail? No, they did not. We've had some in the UK, right? That they're examples of people who've stuck with it, right? Because they've seen their productivity um, either stay the same or go up. Yeah. And, and in many ways, I think culturally, the UK is a wonderful place to, to trial it because what I observed, you know, working in London was that it is a, a sort of interesting average of continental Europe work norms yeah. and American yeah. work norms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, with probably Asia Pacific as an outlier, even further than some of the American norms about yeah. number of hours worked. Right. And so the UK is a very interesting kind of like world average. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, like you're, you're, you're a good, good place to start the experiment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it, it shows if, if the UK can do it, then, uh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. It, it might work, you know, it here or work. here. Sort of. yeah, yeah, exactly. It might work either side of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, but it is interesting, you know, working, having done a lot of work in Europe is that they, and and the US, and you see how, you know, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure the same pattern of intensification has occurred there, but it's just, they they seem to have, much stronger norms against it. Yeah. And even, you know, you see massive variation regionally within the United States. That it's it's fascinating, even kind of city by city, that you get these very specific working norms that can even be distorted by things like what the traffic patterns are around the commute. You know, and you really get these sort of super localized working norms. And that's the other interesting thing for, you know, if you're a company that has offices in multiple cities, multiple countries, et cetera, mm. et cetera, how do you create, again, a way of working that's structured enough to be consistent, but flexible enough to, you know, flex to some of those, you know, like the weird stuff about like, you know, in California, they have to kind of get out of the office by 3.30 or they're going to sit on the, you know, whatever freeway for three hours in traffic, yeah. right? You, know, yeah. you got to accommodate some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which I get that 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 ties with the title of the book, right? Work here now. It's like what's happening here now, yeah, and based, right now. Base yeah, exactly. base your uh, your approach around that. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, is there anything we've missed? Anything you want to want to throw in? Um, no, this has been a great wide ranging uh, conversation. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yes, for those who've listened and want to, I mean, how many strategies are there? There's a as, there's um, 90 there's strategies. 90 strategies. Yep. So, 45 for organizations and 45 are things you can do with your own team, yeah. just at team level. Yeah. So there's absolutely packed with you know ideas. Um the book for those of you who want to go and get it. And once again, it's uh no, let me I listen, I took your advice and I, I hid my self view, so I wasn't looking at my um <laughs> there, you camera, go. there we go. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh work here now. Uh, by Melissa Swift. Thanks uh, once again. So, if people want to, we'll put we'll put a link to the book in the description, uh, and it's they they can find you at Mercer anywhere else you'd you'd send them. Yep, I'm very active on uh, LinkedIn and and somewhat okay. active on Twitter as well. I'm at me Swift okay. on Twitter. So okay, I will find me in those, those places links. too. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks once again. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human.
For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.